Hi, you're listening to iiPod, the official podcast of the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Matt Bortz, Curator of Fossils at the Duke Lemur Center. And I'm Megan McGrath, Education Programs Manager at the Duke Lemur Center. Hi, Matt. Hi, Megan. Today, we're welcoming one of our colleagues from the Duke Lemur Center to iiPod. My name is Danielle Lynch. I've been at the Lemur Center about seven years now. I actually started originally as a summer intern. From there, after graduating from North Carolina State University, Danielle became a TA or technician assistant and then came on staff as a primate technician or keeper. And recently, Danielle became one of our two lead technicians. That means Danielle is not only in charge of caring for her own section of lemurs, she's also an important resource that volunteers, other keepers, and the vet staff depend on. Danielle is in charge of helping lead the staff, helping with manage a lot of the animals. And so it's a lot of training new staff, you know, helping manage all the things that happen day to day. So managing and organizing introductions and schedule all the things that happen every single day in the lemur center. There are a lot of moving parts at the lemur center, especially where the animals are concerned. It takes a team of dedicated professionals and different roles collaborating every single day. The vets do the medical part. The vets are in charge of all their medical needs, medications, you know, any sort of procedures, routine physicals, things like that. And we do sort of the caretaking behavioral part. So we're in charge of their day-to-day care, feeding, enriching, cleaning, watching them behaviorally, doing observations. So our job as keepers is to watch their behaviors and report those medical issues. While Danielle has been responsible for many types of lemurs at the Duke Lemur Center, she has a special admiration for ring-tailed lemurs and their place is what we sometimes like to call the token lemur. They're so hardy. They are the easiest to breed, the easiest to keep in captivity, and they can survive a lot. They're super cold hardy, so you can keep them in a lot of different conditions. They're super warm hardy, so, you know, they can be hot, they can be in cooler weather. Um, They actually are the only species that gets to go out at a lower temperature than all of our other species here because they are such a hardy species. Um, They breed easily. Personally, I think that's probably why they're so common in captivity because they're so easy to keep in captivity. When Danielle comes to work with the ring-tailed lemurs, she knows there might be some surprises. They're very cognitively smart in the way of like their social hierarchy. They are very complex. They live in giant groups in the wild. Um, And here we try and keep them in as big as groups as possible, but they keep us busy. Their dynamics are ever-changing every single day. So they require a lot of observations and a lot of like planning. And it's kind of like a puzzle every single day to figure out who's in charge today, who's changing dynamics. And, you know, as something as simple as an animal, like coming out for a vet procedure for 10 minutes can easily change the dynamics of the group. And we have to then pick it apart and try and alter it and things like that. So it's important that we pay super close attention to them socially. And so I think that's what keeps me busy. And that's probably what I like about them the most is that they're very smart and they're very like socially intelligent. You mentioned the size of ring-tailed lemur troops, and I think it's important to note that in the wild, you can see troops of 30 individuals living together, but our numbers at the lemur center are much smaller, typically just one breeding female with her mate and offspring. So with a few generations of twins, that can get up to about seven or eight individuals. We want to incorporate as much of how these lemurs would live in the wild as possible, but the wild is also a scary place, sometimes with predators, unreliable food sources, fierce competition among rivals, so we just want to minimize risks of any harm for the lemurs. So no matter what we do, it's always going to be a bit different from the wild, right? 
in the wild, you know, if there's a scarcity of food, that dominant female is going to have first access to it. So a subordinate female or even a male wouldn't have access to that food right away if there was only, you know, so much available that dominant female is getting it first. At the Lemur Center, we come in every single day and they get a diet every single day and in multiple times a day, they're offered food. And in the wild, there's also predation. And when you're a satellite female or a satellite male and you're subordinate and you're living sort of on the outskirts a little bit further away from the center of the group, you're automatically going to be, you know, the one who may be picked off first by a predator. So it's kind of like glamping here, right? Like the light version of living wild, especially for our free ranging lemurs. So when the weather is warm enough for some of our lemurs to be free ranging out in the forest, what's a typical day like for them? So day in the life of a lemur, are going to wake up when the sun rises. Typically, our techs um, don't go out into the enclosures until about 10 o'clock, between 10 and 11, depending on what the day looks like. So they are going to forage in the morning, um, depending on the seasons, snacking throughout the day. And then once the tech goes out there, they um, actually, each enclosure has an audio cue. We train them and they're required to come to the audio cue to their feed site and get fresh water. And then they're free to, you know, be their lemur selves and be lemurs for the rest of the day in the woods. If they're an inside lemur, so they have no forest access, um, they are fed multiple times a day. So we at least feed them twice a day, but all the techs always trying, you know, offer food as much as possible to keep their days dynamic. They're going to get enrichment, you know, different times of the day, things like that. They may have TAs or keepers cleaning in the areas, rebranching, things like that. So there's constantly things going on in the day of a life of a ringtail. When Danielle talks about enrichment, she's referring to some of the activities that the Lemur Center provides to enhance the daily life of lemurs. Enrichment can also really highlight some of the differences between different ringtail lemur personalities. When we're trying to ask them to work for their food, we'll put their food in bags and we'll wrap them all up in bags and they'll just sit there and they'll look at you and they're like, what do you want me to do with this? How, how am I supposed to get into it? They're paper bags too. A human primate could open it with their teeth. So we're not asking them to do anything super complicated and you'll come back later and you're like, okay, let me check and see if they've like, you know, worked it out. And they're still sitting there staring at the bag, unsure how to get this banana out of the bag. And so you have to go in there, obviously, because we need to make sure that they eat. So we go in there and we'll open up the bag for them. And then they're, you know, super excited and they have to navigate the bag because now they've seen that the banana's in the bag and they can get into the bag. My favorite thing about ringtail groups is that you can see their different personalities when you give out enrichment. There will always be one lemur who will open all the bags. And then there's a lemur who will follow behind that lemur and get into the open bags after whichever lemur has figured out how to open them. So it's, you can see their different personalities because you'll have one lemur who will open all the bags and then the other one who will follow behind them because they can't figure out how to open the bags. These different personalities are what make the group dynamic so fascinating. And that's a huge part of you and the other keepers' jobs, right? Observing the personalities and interactions. Can you give us an inside scoop on one of the ringtail lemur troops? Maybe introduce us to Liesel's troop, since you've been their primary keeper for years now? So we have Liesel, who's the matriarch. And then next in line under her is Griselda. And then her twin sister, Hedwig. And then their older sister, Gretel. And then last but not least is an old man, Arrakis, who is actually their father with Liesel. So it's not unusual for Gretel, who is actually the lowest ranking female currently, to try and displace Hedwig. I'm constantly watching Gretel because Gretel will often displace Hedwig during feeding. And I'm watching super close because I need to make sure that Liesel is actually still backing up Hedwig. So what will happen is Gretel will actually approach Hedwig during feeding and 
Hedwig will then cackle and run. And then Liesel will actually then displace Gretel, which is a super important thing because that means that Hedwig is still being backed by Liesel. So that means Hedwig is still in charge over Gretel. Um, But sometimes that flips and I have to pay really close attention. So what are you looking for? Like what makes warning bells go off in your head? Do you have any particular stories about dominance like shifting right in front of your eyes? There was one time that we had a vet procedure and the twins were separated for a vet procedure when normally we leave them together. So that way they stay um, tight. Um, They were separated just because of the way it happened that day. And we let them back out and I came in the next day and Hedwig had a huge laceration on her hand. And we found out that Griselda also had lacerations. So there was a sort of, they had to work out their dominance again um, with lacerations. We gave Hedwig a time out and we can sort of tactfully separate these animals to sort of attempt to keep the hierarchy the way we want. Obviously it's up to them in the end if they want to keep the hierarchy the way it is, but we can sort of tactfully separate it by separating out Hedwig for the night. We sort of put her a little bit lower ranking than Griselda by keeping Griselda with the group. So that worked and actually went right back in line. And now Griselda's back second ranking again. They have complicated social dynamics. How do you interpret those? What are you looking for? What, what are you seeing that's giving you the warning bells? So it can be very subtle or very obvious. Sometimes it, it just like people, Ringtail lemurs, and especially the matriarchs, all have their own personalities. So we have some females who are very subtly dominant, and then we have some females who are very obvious. So it can be as simple as during feeding time, you'll see one lemur displace another lemur, and you have to know the rankings. So what's super important is knowing where each individual lies in the hierarchy. And so if I know a lower ranking female is sort of displacing a higher ranking female, they may be trying to make a play for dominance and things like that. So it'd be super important to pay attention to that. Okay. So within the context of working with lemurs, can you tell us what displacement is? So a displacement can be as simple as just when an individual is sitting in one area, they may move towards them and the other individual will submissively move away, or it can be rushing up and actively making them move. So it it depends on the female and how obvious they want to be. (laughs) When you do see a slight shift between Gretel, Griselda, mm-hmm. Hedwig, you know, the, the sisters yeah, that are all yeah. kind of vying, you know, do you also have to watch for how the other lemurs react? You know, if two of the sisters are having a conflict, is the other sister blithely unaware or is she paying attention to what's going on? Yeah. So I feel like it depends on the situation. So if like the dominant female is choosing to back one of the females who's involved in a conflict, then that dominant female will then get involved. Um, so if it's a subordinate female going after another subordinate female, the matriarch may get involved, but if it's a lower ranking individual going at it with a higher ranking individual, you're going to have your lower ranking individual staying out of it because they want nothing to do with it. In the wild ringtails, because they have such large troops, they have multiple breeding right. females, right? Yeah. So very different than a lot of other lemur species who you just have mom and then it's very simple who's in charge. Yes. Um, The dominant female, her daughters will then inherit that dominance, but it doesn't necessarily always mean birth order because like, for example, Gretel is actually older than Hedwig and Griselda, but she is lower ranking. It could, a lot of it has to do with personality sometimes. Sometimes you have females who, at least in captivity, are more dominant than others. Um, Some are just like, I'll just ride easy at the bottom and it is what it is. Just like people, they also have different personalities and you may have a more dominant female in the group and you may have a female who wants to be in charge. And at that point, mom will then kick them out for them to go make their own family group. 
You said that troops are larger in the wild. What are the limits to the size of the troops that we can have in captivity, specifically here at the Lemur Center? A lower ranking individual needs to be able to get away from a higher ranking individual if they need to. And if there's just not enough space for 30 individuals to have that ability to get away, then it's going to be chaos. And obviously we want good welfare for them and we want them to be safe in their space. So managing them in smaller groups is better in captivity. We do try and keep them as big as possible. We're super lucky because we have our free ranging and enclosures that we can put them out. They have, you know, in some cases, one to 14 acres, depending on which enclosure they live in. So they can have that space to naturally function as a group and have a little bit more, you know, freedom from each other. Within that space, there are still a lot of dynamics at play for the group. One is when a new member is introduced. That could be a family group being reintroduced um, after a birth or when we're making new pairings, new groups. Babies are sort of like the little exception for there. So I like to call it the baby card. So when you have a baby because they're a baby, um, mom's going to be more protective of them and things like that. So they're automatically going to be above their siblings. As they age, their sort of roles will play out and they will find their role in the hierarchy, but you will have this sort of baby card that they'll play where mom will still protect them for so long until they are, you know, of age and then can fill in their roles in the hierarchy, wherever that may be with that particular group. And what is it? It's kind of fun to watch, right? Like, what does it look like when a baby card starts getting rejected for, you know, like a six month old male who's been like riding easy for six months straight? Yeah. So it can be sort of sad to watch because they have this like realization where they are no longer the baby and mom will sort of not allow them near her food anymore. Cause obviously while they've been with mom, they've had access to mom's food and then mom will slowly be like, all right, you're old enough and start displacing that baby away from the food. And, you know, sometimes you'll even see moms take food right out of the baby's mouth. And that's when they slowly learn that they are no longer high ranking with their mom anymore. (laughs) That reminds me, we haven't really talked about the males in the troop yet. And Liesl's troop has one of our favorite males ever, a distinguished member of the Lemur Center population born in 1991, Mr. Arrakis. Who's a very old man and males are the lowest ranking no matter what happens. They're always under females. Because he is low ranking, he has less access to food, but he's also a really great male and he knows how to be socially like appropriate, but he is also old. So we had to start locking in the group every single day because the girls eat so fast that he they would gobble up all their food and poor Rackus is still trying to eat, but he knows that he has to stay with his family group. So he would run off with his family group and he was starting to drop weight. And we just changed our management a little bit to get him to be able to be able to have enough time to eat. So I separate him every single day with his own diet from the girls, just because they're so fast and young and, you know, they eat so quickly. So now Arrakis has his own diet every single day and his own little alone time to eat his food. And then he goes back with his group once he's done. The diet of the ringtail lemurs at the lemur center is obviously going to be very different than what it can be in the wild. So what do you feed them and how do we manage their diet since eating can get so wrapped up with the troop hierarchies here? Their diets can be super, super diverse. The typical standard diet for a ringtail would be primate biscuits, which is everything they could need nutritionally. And it looks like a little chicken nugget and we soak them with water so they're not too hard. And it's got everything they need in them. On top of that, they'll get usually a 50-50 mix of fruits and vegetables and it rotates every single day to be a different fruit and vegetable. And then if you're in the forest, Um, On your days that you're free ranging, you're only going to get the primate biscuit because like I said, it has everything they need in it. That's in addition to the grapes and other food items that are set out in the forest for them to forage. 
Sometimes the diet needs to change because of the medical needs of a particular ringtail lemur. We actually use three different types of primate chow to accommodate the different lemurs' dietary needs based on the species and the individual. That includes the more high-cal old-world primate chow and folivore chow, which is specially targeted to more folivorous or leaf-eating primates. For our guys who are a little bit on the chubby side, they'll get, you know, half primate biscuit and half folivore biscuit, which is actually a little bit smaller biscuit. And it's actually higher in fiber, lower in sugar. One particular lemur here who is a diabetic and she only gets folivore chow and only two grapes. And then all the rest is vegetables um, for her because she used to be managed with like insulin injections and things like that. But we've gotten her diabetes to a point that it's managed strictly through diet now. So she only gets the folivore because it's lower in sugar. And if you're trying to bribe a lemur to do training or to maybe do something that's not as comfortable for them, obviously food is a big bribe. So what's the bribe for lemurs, for ringtail lemurs? It's usually craisins. Craisins is their like favorite, favorite if grapes. And I know bananas, like the ones we talked about in the bags, are also very exciting for the lemurs. But what if you're a lemur who doesn't get those more sugary foods? What about if you get mostly vegetables? Pretty much apple would be like your go-getter. These bribes I mentioned can be more professionally termed high-value rewards, and they're really important to know for training cooperative behaviors like having the lemurs jump onto a scale for their monthly weight check, or walk calmly into a carrier when they're moving into a new habitat. That training is also important to keep the lemurs mentally stimulated and engaged, which makes it a form of enrichment. I'll say again, the wild can be a very scary place, so you've got to worry about where your next meal is coming from while you're dodging predators and navigating some complicated relationships with your extended family. At the Lemur Center, we absolutely treat our lemurs like wild animals, but that doesn't mean we want to completely replicate their wild experience. We try to focus on enriching activities that are not stressful or harmful. Here at the Lemur Center, enrichment is a huge part of what we do every single day. So there's lots of different kinds of forms of enrichment. So it can be structural, scent enrichment, food enrichment, manipulation enrichment. So those are like things like puzzle feeders um, by using puzzle feeders and asking them to work for their food and asking them to use their brains and sort of trying to simulate the things that they would do in the wild. These enrichment items enrich their lives every single day and force them to use their brains like they would in the wild and not just be stagnant all day. One of the key ways that ringtail lemurs communicate with one another is through scent. In fact, one of their favorite enrichment activities is when they get a new branch, they just start to scent mark that branch all over the place. And so they use their noses and scent glands in a behavior called stink fighting, which sounds like a punk band that just never really took off, but it is serious business for ring-tailed lemurs. We asked Danielle to explain how stink fighting actually works. So essentially they take their tail and they put it between their legs and they have spurs on their wrists and then they have scent glands on their sort of shoulder areas and they actually will take the spurs and rub them on their shoulders and then they will rub it on the tail and sort of waft the scent to the other lemur. (laughs) So it results in this, what is very intimidating to other lemurs, but it's kind of funny to watch, which is, you know, a male ringtail lemur standing up against the fence line, squeaking very aggressively and flicking his tail over the Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And then of course the stinkiest lemur wins. Well, and I was going to say, and it's super interesting too, to me that it's such a like behavior that's ingrained in their brain that we even have, so we have one male ring-tailed lemur who doesn't have a tail and he will still mimic the behavior of stink fighting and 
appear to be trying to stink fight a tail that is not there. Don't worry about Nikos, everyone. He got an injury when he was a baby from a dominus dispute he was not part of. And the best option to treat it was to go ahead and amputate the tail. And he does just fine, although he is very thick-thighed. And we think there's a reason for that. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about within the group, yeah. social dynamics. Um, let's talk a little bit about like outside of the group, which we actually get a chance to see, right? Because we have our natural habitat yeah. enclosure fence lines where they can see but not touch mm-hmm. other troops. Yeah, so they share fence lines. So, I mean, there's obviously like a 10-foot um, differences between the fence lines, but they can see each other. Um, so it's not uncommon for us to have the two males of the, you know, two groups um, stink fighting each other. So it sort of is like displaying their scent um, to the other group and just telling them like back off. The lemurs are definitely always on the lookout for competition. And that even includes reacting to their own reflections on the windows of our indoor animal housing buildings. While they're intelligent in many ways, lemurs do not self-recognize in mirrors. So every now and then a lemur will perch on a doorway, see his own reflection in the window and furiously stink fight himself. Stink fighting is generally a male's only activity, either to compete with other males or flirt and share their scent with females, but sometimes... I have in some cases seen some females doing it during a little bit more of our standoffish females, like when they didn't want us in their space. But probably the most iconic behavior of the ring-tailed lemur, both males and females, is when they sit with their arms wide and their chests and bellies facing the sun. I feel like it's not as complex as people think it is. So they're trying to get the sun on that white belly airy chest area to gather warmth <laughs> i also find it really funny how enamored everyone is with this behavior and how odd we think that it is but then if you go to any beach on any coast in the summer you see the exact same behavior yep well we're all primates and who doesn't want to go bask in the sun for a little while well thank you so much to danielle lynch for sharing her expertise with us on iipod we learned so much about their relationships and behavior from one of our insiders here at the duke lemur center Thanks for joining us on this Duke Lemur Center journey. Subscribe and discover more episodes each season. We look forward to sharing more about the Duke Lemur Center with you soon. And in the meantime, follow us on social media and visit us at lemur.duke.edu. A special thanks to Julie Bortz, who edited this episode. And thank you and goodbye for now. From Matt and Megan and all the primates at the Duke Lemur Center.